Hello, and thank you for tuning into Answers from the Lab, where we share Mayo Clinic knowledge and advancements on the state of testing and science from laboratory leaders and the people who are making it happen behind the scenes. I'm Dr. Bobby Pritt, a clinical microbiologist and the chair of the Division of Clinical Microbiology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. With me today is Dr. Bill Maurice, the chair of the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology at Mayo Clinic and the president of Mayo Clinic Laboratories. This is our weekly discussion with Dr. Maurice in which we learn about updates in laboratory testing during the COVID-19 pandemic. Bill, welcome back. It's great to see you. Great to see you too. Hope you had a good weekend. I did. Here in this part of the country, it went from like spring to summer, literally overnight. It went from like in the 60s to like in the 80s and 90s. So yeah, that happens in Minnesota. Yes, indeed. Two days of spring and it goes right into summer. Yep. Well, you know, with that, it's been nice to see our COVID cases going down. And of course, this past year, that's been our hot topic that we've been talking about. But, you know, there's so many other issues. And I wanted to just take a step back and reflect a little bit on the roles that you play, because you're in such a unique position. You are the president of Mayo Clinic Laboratories, this large international reference lab. But then you're also the chair of the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology at Mayo Clinic Rochester. And so can you tell us a little bit about those two roles and what it's like to have sort of these two uh, very large but very different responsibilities? Besides the fact it makes for a long title and small pop <laughs> on a business card. Yeah, uh, such a mouthful there. <laughs> That's for sure. But it's very interesting. So it is true. I have dual roles. I, it's really unique at Mayo. I'm the chair of the department and every department has a chair that's responsible for the academic practice, research and education in the department and gets to work with division chairs like yourself. But in addition, for the last 50 years, we have allowed people to send specimens to our laboratories in our academic department for testing to be done to support patients outside of our campus. That's what reference lab work refers to. And because it happens in the same labs in the department, the choice was to make the person that was department chair also the person that was the president of the reference laboratory business because it is a business. And you're right. What that does is it really creates, for me, a very unique vista which I think we've talked a lot about during the COVID pandemic and that I think about the science and the practice and, and serving the patient needs, but I also think about it, what we've referred to really as the industry, the reference laboratory industry and what's happening in the, in the reference lab industry. Oftentimes in the academic world, we're sort of insulated from that. We don't have great insights into that. So I think it's really a great opportunity for all of us at Mayo, myself included, that are in lab medicine to really think about both sides of the coin and how we can contribute to help making the system work. Well, I think it's very important because, like you said, if you're just in academic medicine, it's easy to become a little bit insulated to some of the big issues that's facing our field in laboratory medicine and pathology as a whole. And you really get to see that through Mayo Clinic Laboratories and also some of your leadership roles on some of these national and international boards that face some of these challenging issues. Yeah, I don't know if you yeah. want to tell us a bit about yeah. that. Yeah, so as a, for instance, AREP is a similar where they have the University of Utah and then AREP Laboratory. So there are a few of us that have both this, an academic viewpoint as well as an industry viewpoint. And we participate on a group called ACLA, the American Clinical Laboratory Association, which is actually the trade association for clinical laboratories in, based in Washington, D.C. So that has companies like Quest and LabCorp and BRL and Sonic and then Mayo Clinic Laboratories, not DLMP, if not the academic representation that we're there, we're there as Mayo Clinic Labs, same for AREP. They're not there as University of Utah, they're there as AREP. What that is, it's a group that thinks about how we advocate for issues, 
in the federal government that are pertinent to laboratory testing and clinical laboratory testing. And I'm actually the chair of the board of directors for that group. So I get to be the chair of a group of people that are other CEOs, which are a little it's a little intimidating sometimes. A little, it's interesting to say the least, but we come together and say, gosh, what are some of the big issues that are coming at laboratories from the federal government that we need to be engaged with? And so that was the group, actually, a lot of the insights that I was able to share with you in the department and then some of the people listening to the podcast on COVID were actually through that, my participation in ACLA, because that was a group that was being called to meet with the Pence team and others. So it provides a very unique vista. And I think there are a couple of really major issues out there, which many academic labs might not be aware of, which could profoundly change our practice. And that's really what it boils down to. It doesn't change just the business. It actually changes the practice that we are all engaged in. Well, that's why I think it's so important for all of us that are in pathology and laboratory medicine as leaders to be aware of these issues, even if we're in our own little academic bubble and we think, oh, I'm just going to sign out my cases or be a lab director. This doesn't really apply to me, but it does. It applies to how we get paid, which means that our lab could shut down if we aren't, you know, the nuts and bolts of having a business and just so many other issues. Do you want to tell us a little bit about those? There's so many and they all have these long or these little acronyms. So maybe you can explain what they mean and what they stand for. Yeah, long names and little acronyms. And I don't know (laughs) if I can remember all of them. And it's interesting. It's like the tax code, right? It applies to everybody. We don't really think a lot about it because it seems arcane. But so the two big ones that are out there, one is called Protection to Access to Medicare Act or PAMA. That is really pertained to how CMS is setting pricing for laboratory testing. And that's important because Medicare prices tend to be the benchmark then that insurers use to set their reimbursement schedules for clinical laboratory tests. This was a part actually of the Affordable Care Act that this legislation went through. It was intended to have more market-based pricing because one of the things we don't realize with the lab, we have our own fee schedule, right? Uh, Separate from the physician fee schedule. And so That means we've always been subject to different sorts of cuts in reimbursement. And so the push was, as part of the Affordable Care Act, we should have market-based, meaning that the federal government should go out and look at what people are paying for tests and set a median and say that's what the reimbursement should be rather than these arbitrary cuts. Unfortunately, there were some challenges with the way that was enacted, that it actually sampled much more of the independent labs like Quest and LabCorp, which tend to get reimbursed less. So it drove down the overall pricing. So now we're facing major cuts and it can be up to 15% per year, I think is the maximum that a fee can be cut, which you can imagine for those of us running labs that could really quickly impact our ability to run some of the tests because our, if we're in our hospitals might say that's not affordable for us anymore if we're not getting paid as much as it costs us to run it. So that's something that's really important. There's a group called MedPAC, which is an advisory group. There's all these groups in Washington and, and I, it's a whole different ecosystem in the federal government, but they're basically an independent group that's gonna come back with some recommendations here, probably this month to the federal government on potential changes to PAMA. That's something for people to really keep an eye on because it'll be important. One thing to mention, Bobby, is that when we're working in our labs, stay aware of things and your voice matters. The academic and clinical laboratory voice matters You know, to your, represent, your representatives in government. So that's a big one we're, we're looking at right now. What's going to happen with reimbursement? We try and get information out to people so that they need to get engaged and activated that they do so. And it's really difficult right now because the view in the federal government is like, oh, our clinical labs had it great because we paid so much for COVID testing last year 
we don't have to worry about the clinical labs now. They got a bunch of money from COVID testing, which of course for most labs, that's not true at all. So that's one big issue. The other one we're worried about and concerned about and keep an eye on is the FDA regulation of laboratory developed tests. So this is something that was, if you recall, there was a draft guidance before the pandemic, I think in 2018 perhaps, where the FDA came out and said, we are going to regulate, these are the principles by which we would regulate laboratory developed tests. And if they come forward and do that, that could be potentially very, very onerous for anyone running a clinical lab that does a lab developed test. And that means anything outside of FDA approved testing, even modifications to FDA approved tests could fall into that category. So the position of the clinical laboratories was that we didn't want the FDA just to do this on their own, that we preferred to see something go through Congress so that you could have more stakeholders engage in what it might mean for clinical labs. Because ultimately, if the government pays less and they make it more difficult to develop tests, it's going to decrease innovation for patients at a time when innovation in laboratory medicine is really needed, as was shown by the pandemic. So there's going to be a lot of activity on that as well. But those are the two big ones is this FDA regulation of laboratory developed tests and decreased reimbursement for tests that we do perform. Well, yeah, and as you're saying this, I also wonder what this would do if this would hurt our more vulnerable patients that might have decreased access to tests, some of our more elderly individuals that are in the Medicaid and Medicare systems, would that impact their ability to get tests? So I think there's a lot of perhaps even unintended consequences that could come out of these. So it's good that we're taking a a bigger look at this. Oh, for sure. And I think there's, you know, again, for anyone that's listening in the labs, The important thing is to advocate for what we do and to make sure that people really understand it. Uh, To your point, one of my biggest concerns actually with all this is the effect it will have on rural healthcare and on hospitals that are in areas that, in urban areas that are serving in lower economic areas. There's really three things that keep a hospital afloat. It's laboratories, it's radiology, and surgery. And a lot of those other, like in rural healthcare, there's usually not much in the way of surgery. So it's pretty much lab and radiology. So what happens if they start to really cut on the laboratories is that those hospitals end up closing. Now, I tweeted a story really sad out of Georgia about the rural hospital there, predominantly African-American community that closed. This dramatic impact, pre-pandemic it closed, and the dramatic impact it had on the pandemic because people had to drive 50, 60 miles and many of them didn't have cars. So there were people literally that suffered from not having the right diagnosis and many of them had really bad outcomes, including death from COVID because they didn't get the right care all because the hospitals just weren't financially sustainable. So that's an example. If this goes through, what will that happen? We have all of our hospitals here in southeastern Minnesota, southwestern Wisconsin that roll up to our department. We say Middleton and Rochester, but we serve those communities too. So I think really thinking about that. And the other is that through my position, uh, you know, in this business side, I've had a chance to talk to insurers. And many of you might recall there was a study that was released I don't know, I want to say like six, seven years ago, showing how much more expensive it was to run a test in a hospital than it was outside of a hospital, which for insurers say, oh gosh, that means the hospitals are too expensive. Well, no, to run the test in the hospital, you do it in the hospital because it supports all the other things that the hospital does for a community. And it's not just a lab sitting in a building. And that's why we need to reimburse and our reimbursement needs to recognize that. Again, people lose track of that. So I think it's going to be really important for anyone 
listening to really just to continue. A lot of these things happen because people just don't understand the value that we contribute to patients. And I think it's kind of uh, startling is probably too strong of a word, but it's a little bit surprising when you think back a year ago, it was all about testing. You and I were on national media outlets talking about testing. You would think people would walk away and say, gosh, we got to do something about testing. But now as the pandemic wanes, it's sort of like all that harvest. I think many of us just want to move on to be completely honest. But the reality is that these things still confront us. And so we have to be engaged and kind of advocating for being part of the solution. Well, so I think the bottom line here is we need to pay attention to all these things. One good way we could do that, one way that I do it is be involved in our professional societies. I do a lot with the College of American Pathologists, you with ACLA and other institutions. There's lots of ways for people to get involved. So you, even if you are in your little academic bubble, you have to be aware of what's going on around you because it's really going to impact the way you practice. I agree. And then who knows? And that's why we do these podcasts too, is to share information. So maybe we'll do something fun. Like, you know, we talked about doing something live on Twitter or something like that. Maybe to get people ask questions. Cause I think it gets very confusing and it's a little intimidating sometimes to ask. So maybe if these things start to go forward, maybe we can do something interactive like that with our audience so they can ask. It's a great idea. I know that the first few times I heard the word PAMA, I didn't really pay it a lot of attention. You really have to hear these things and have a chance to discuss them with other people to understand them. Yep, I agree. And it is like the tax code. It's a little arcane, (laughs) so you just don't want to think about it, right? Now is the time, because once those things become law, they're law. So so this is our time. So yeah, anything we can do to help. Well, thanks for bringing all this up, Bill. So I have one final question for you. What do you do to stay sane with uh, having these two very large, diverse leadership roles? How do you make sure that you uh, have well-being and a focus on yourself? Well, I was about to say that some might argue how successful I am at staying sane, but it depends (laughs) on who you ask. I think the, the thing, the most important thing, Bobby, for me personally, is that you have to identify what's really important to you and make sure that you always prioritize those things, no matter what your other responsibilities are. For me, it's my family, it's my faith, and it's my physical fitness. And so I try and carve out time. As a, for instance, this morning, it's a beautiful day. It's hot. I just came back in town. So I decided to ride my bike to work and take a 15-mile ride on the way in. I did have a meeting at 745, so I took my headset with me and I stopped. And I had my meeting and then I continued in and then I sat outside for my next meeting because I was kind of hot and sweaty. So the reality is you have to do fulfill your professional responsibilities, but also take care of yourself. That's the most important thing, no matter what. Don't let your job subsume you and spend enough time focusing on the things that you know are important uh, and, and don't sacrifice them. Well said. I completely agree. Well, as always, Bill, it's been great talking with you and uh, we'll, we'll chat more next week. Yeah, I'm sure that there's going to be no shortage of things to talk about. There never is. Thank you so much for tuning in to Answers from the Lab. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to tune in every Thursday and every other Tuesday.